2: The Gist is brought to you by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door, all at a fraction of the price of other razors. Visit harrys.com and use the promo code The Gist.
1: Thursday, November 6th, 2014 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, And guess what? It's our six-month anniversary. We started May 5th, and now it's November 6th. Wait, you're saying, shouldn't the six-month anniversary have that same number? Well, you got to take February into account. No one takes February into account. Whenever I lease an apartment, I try to get an 11-month lease and have February not be included in that. February is always screwing things up. So when I calibrate six-month anniversaries, if it includes February, I add a day. Why not add two days? No, that would be ridiculous. Plus daylight savings. Anyway, we have a special show. The problem with a best-of show, we're thinking, oh, we'll play best-of segments. You probably heard the segments. Also, it's a little selfish, a little pat on the backy. So I wanted to be generous. Although generous does connote self-congratulations too, right? Like, I'm giving out these bouquets, or or it's up to me to pay compliments. So I want to be selfless. I don't want this to be about myself. Well, I don't want eight-ninths of this to be about myself. I want this to be about some of the other great podcasts out there, Slate Podcasts in particular. I'm a huge fan of podcasts. I'll just tell you the ones I listened to in the last 24 hours. Too Beautiful to Live, Song Exploder. I listen to Colin McEnroe talking about the uh, election from a Connecticut perspective, Brian Lair from a New York perspective. I listen to uh, WTF. The the Dr. Drew, Dr. Drew Pinsky interview is really good. And I listen to a bunch of Slate podcasts. Now, the Slate podcasts you probably know them, you probably listen to them, but you might not listen to all of them because there is a portion of the big Slate podcasts, Hang Up and Listen, the Culture podcast and Political Gab Fest. There's a Portion of them that's only available to Slate Plus members. And if you are a member, you know all about this program. If you're not a member, I'll tell you a bit how to sign up at the end of the show. But I'm going to take a few of these segments that heretofore were available only to Slate Plus members. I'm going to play it on this show. It has a few purposes. Just want to highlight good things. Also, I want to plug and mention that all of these podcasts, these nine podcasters you're about to hear, will be under one roof. On November 17th at the Music Hall of Williamsburg in Brooklyn. So now I'm bringing them out from their secret caverns. I'm playing a couple good ones, a couple good moments. Let's start with the political gab fest. A few months ago, South Carolina cops arrested a woman for letting her nine-year-old play on a playground. I talked about it on The Gist, and they talked about it on the political gab fest. Turns out the cops arrested this woman. She was working in a McDonald's. She was a single mom. The kid had a cell phone. Seemed like a huge overreaction. In a non plus segment, which was the week before the thing you're going to hear ad, it wasn't a non plus segment, the panelists weren't confused, but in a regular show segment, Emily opined that they shouldn't have called the cops, and David Plot said he would have called the cops, and Dickerson has always played referee and raised interesting points around them. So in this segment, this slate-plus segment we're about to play, the panelists talked about the listener feedback they got, which was almost all on Emily's side. And so we'll start with Emily quoting New York Times columnist Ross Douthat.
3: Ross Dothat had a really good term for exactly what troubled me about the behavior of the parent who called the mom. He called her a bad Samaritan. This is a term from someone's social science research. And that is exactly what I was trying to get at. But I also wanted to point out that we're in this cultural moment where people are very quick to call in the authorities when they see something they don't know what to do about. And that I have, and I think this is shared nostalgia for a time when people intervened in a more private way and tried to help each other and tried to help raise each other's kids. And that's what I was like calling out to. But that
4: was also, but didn't you have two points? One is the better communal relationship. But then the second was that there's plenty of good reason to be wary about
3: of the police. Of uh, the police. But I also, that part I want to clarify. So it's not that I think police officers are bad, or that there are not situations in which you absolutely would go to the police. A listener wrote in to us about seeing a, a two- or a three-year-old by herself in the park looking for that kid's parents and not being able to find them. Like, yes, that seems like a moment where the police are appropriate. I just think that when you call the police, you can't expect them all the time to do what you think they should. Sometimes just by calling them, you've started a process in which they don't feel like they have the discretion to do the right things. Everything ratchets up. And I think especially when you're talking about black kids and when race enters the picture, there are a lot of reasons to be worried about how the cops might respond.
5: Right. So the the responses that came in, the overwhelmingly negative responses that came in were, especially on race, it was like, thank you, Emily, for standing up for black families. Like you, you the Gaveth, can't even bother not to get a black. Solve, you, can't, you, are... you can't even bother to get any black panelists. But thank you at least, Emily, for representing. Yeah, and David, solution, what is wrong no with problem. you? You as a you know, this is such a white, um, middle upper middle class rich person thing to say. And yes, the cops ruin everything. Clearly, we touch nerve. We have a We have an audience which where people really feel this strongly. I think it is just. So easy to say, to sit here and say, where this, in this case, where it went so awry that. Yes, that, that was bad for mistake. you. Yeah. Fact, yep. set and of then, facts. then the cop did the, yeah.
3: trangle, the strangle chokehold in New York. That was like everyone was sending that link. It was yeah. a bad. The anecdotes were not uh, in your yes, favor the, last the week. The fact
5: that, that it went so awry makes it very easy. But you guys are both helicopter parents. We're all helicopter parents. The idea oh, that, you, parent. that you would leave a 9-year-old. 9-year-old is not a 15-year-old. A 9-year-old is not, is not even a 12-year-old. You would leave a 9-year-old by herself on a playground... You like keep with no
3: changing su- the sets of facts. I wasn't talking about leaving the nine-year-old on the playground. Yeah, I was talking y- about trying to figure out...
5: No, you did. You said. You said on the show that you would leave the nine-year-old. You said that that would be better, that you would walk away. So don't... don't. After you called the a
4: pe- Wait, what? which role is she in? Is she the pe- pe- good the, Samaritan? No, the good Samaritan, the, the
5: bad Samaritan. It is so hard in this world to find the appropriate thing to do. And I am... Again, I am not... like totally defending whatever this bad samaritan did because it went awry and it was but if this child is not part of your community if you call the mom and it doesn't you know you don't get an immediate response if you it seems to me like a not at all unreasonable to think that calling in the authorities is a better solution than leaving a child alone yeah, on this playground. Yeah, but now you've
3: reframed the problem in a way that's in your favor and that's not the well, same of Well, you reframed facts. it no in, one, your, in your no favor to listen. No one tried to, to call the mother at all in this case. We have no That's not part of the story, and I guess you know what actually bothers me. We have so few opportunities in this world to go across class and race, and this—if that was what was going on here—then this is a missed opportunity, and maybe it would have gone around. Well, we don't know it was going across class and race. We have no idea. I don't. You're right. I don't know that. But now we're thinking about partly ourselves and what we would have done in the situation, and that part of it is troubling to me. Like, okay, so if it's a kid from my kid's school, then I, you. Know, assume everything's okay and take the kid home. But if it's a kid I've never seen before, then I call the police. I don't like that as a way of dividing up the world.
5: If it's a kid from your kid's school, you you would take a kid home. If you tried to reach the mother, you would try. To, you would take the kid home. All of us, I think, would probably do the same thing. You would try to reach the mother. You'd speak to the mother, and then, like, depending on what the response or non-response you get, you. Then you move to a different set of issues. Then you move to a different set. Yes. But if you, if you try to reach the mother and you don't reach her.
3: And you and feel you, like you have to leave. Then to me. I mean I think it just depends on the state of the kid. If the kid seems like she's fine and not in distress. I absolutely would leave the child in the park. As opposed to calling the police. If the kid seems okay.
5: I think that. You, it is so easy to say that, and you would never, ever do that. You wouldn't do it.
3: You've never walked away. I don't, I mean, that just seems like, that doesn't seem that hard to me. That hard a call to make. Decision. If dusk is
5: falling... Like, all these circumstances.
4: It's It's
3: really dark. There's a strange assumption. Well, I'm trying to think. But
4: doesn't it go back to your original point, Emily, which is what is your baseline assumption about what happens when you call the authorities? Yes. Is that this initiates a string of irrevocable and irreversible decisions that even the cop may not have a control over. So in other words, because the cop's got a bunch of protocols and he's got a bunch of this yes. issues, this is what you've got to do with a child and child services and yada, 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 yada. So once you enter the child, let's leave the cop, let's say the cop has a benevolent good heart, but the system is set up in a way, do you believe the system is set up in a way that you immediately shove the child and the parent into this stream from which they can't get themselves out of or do you believe that the system is one where a cop maybe has some ju- some discretion they'll they know the community so they know the mo- where the mom is that that you have that feeling about the system and it's whatever your baseline view is that determines whether you reach out to the authority figures
3: right i think that's true i don't i have a deep suspicion of bureaucracy
4: that's just so I'm, I'm going to read you something. It. I'm going to read you something from my favorite Instagram feed in the world, which is Humans of New York. And it's a it's a picture of uh, people from New York and then a great quote about their lives. And the quotes are always amazing. But anyway, there was one a, a couple of weeks ago with this guy and he's a traffic cop. And he said, "I'm a traffic cop. It's a job. Somebody's got to do it. I don't even represent myself when I'm working. If I was representing myself, I'd let everyone off with a warning. I represent a system. Did I design the system? No. I just enforce it. It's not for me to decide the system. We elect the people who decide the system." When I write a ticket, everyone tells me the reason they don't deserve it. If I give a warning to everyone with a reason, I wouldn't give any tickets and the system wouldn't work. I don't get any joy by giving a ticket and I'm not upset if you beat it in court. It's not personal. It's my job. So this is a guy saying, I have no free agency. The system tells me what to do and the system determines this thing. And if he and decides so that, every
3: time he has discretion, how does it, what, like, who, what is, the, what are the boundaries?
4: Right. So the point here is that once you enter the kid into that system, it's the system that takes over, not the discretion of the individual cop. Yeah. And Look,
5: I accept that this system takes over and that the system can can grotesquely mess things up. And a lot of the time, cops actually do have individual discretion. They will exercise it, and it, it would work out. I am sure there are hundreds of cases where kids are alone in parks, yes. cops are brought in, the parents are found, and no one ever hears about it. Yes. This is the one where the mom is getting prosecuted Although and Ross fired. did
3: manage to string together a whole bunch of them. But, of course, you're right. The, 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 the norm the overwhelming is the right
5: majority, thing. The yes. I, I would bet.
3: One would certainly hope. Are
5: you, you call in the authorities. And things kind of work themselves out. And I guess I, maybe this is just wishful thinking. I want to live in a world where the options for people include calling in the authorities, not like the Emily, no snitching, like you can't call in the cops. They're, they're the enemy, <laughs> no which seems snitching. to me like the idea that you would t- the idea that all that you you an upper middle class white lady <laughs> in a rich neighborhood are telling your kids never speak to the cops is kind of terrifying to me. It should make you stop and think, like, wow, that is really strange that I do that.
3: No, I don't think that's strange. I think also it reveals the fact that I write a lot about the legal system going awry and what – I tell my kids about the police has to do with worrying about how people incriminate themselves to the police all the time by talking without lawyers or without their parents there. And that kids, when they have done something very small wrong or have seen someone else do something wrong, are really malleable and vulnerable to being questioned and giving information that may seem innocuous to them but can really get them into trouble. I mean— it's a skewed view of the world because the ones that go wrong are the ones I tend to write about. But it has made my me take the idea of the Miranda warning very seriously with my kids.
5: All right. We will finish it there. Emily, triumphant as ever. No, no. <laughs> but I just, I just, you guys, you. Just, there's no way you would leave the kid there. Just, there's no way. There's no way. There's no way. That's leave it there. <laughs>
1: The GIST is sponsored by Harry's, Harry's Razors, and I will tell you about Harry's. I will tell you four things about Harry's. One, it's an excellent product. Two, it is a product I use. Three, when I say they have a deal, they have a deal. and I'm going to tell you about that. But four, many times people hear our sponsors and say, I'd like to help the gist or I'd like to help this podcast that's playing this ad. But you know, so many of the ads, either you signed up for it 10 years ago, what are you going to sign up for it again? Or you don't need a, to mention a specific sponsor, giant thing you sleep on or the mailing you do maybe takes place in envelopes and postcards, not in bulk. But this, especially if you're a guy, maybe only if you're a guy, this is something that you use every day. And so for 15 bucks, you can swap out the thing that you're gonna use and use up, which is your regular razor, and you could try this new razor. And when you do, you'd be immeasurably helping the gist. And I'm going to tell you, you'll be helping yourself because you will see the benefits of Harry's. So now I will tell you about the deal. For 15 bucks, you get a razor, you get three blades, they last a while, and you get your choice of Harry's Shave Cream or their new Foaming Shave Gel. And to get this offer, go to harrys.com and Harry's will give you $5 off if you type in the code THEGIST with your first purchase. That's H A R R Y S.com. Enter the coupon code THEGIST at checkout for $5 off and change the way you shave forever. So let's go to the next segment culture fest and i'm actually just going to play a small clip from a larger bonus segment where a bachelorette party showed up to a culture fest taping weird bachelorette party maybe but it did get at why this bachelorette party was there how personal podcasts can be as panelist dana stevens questioned one of the bachelorette party members
3: Given that this is what you chose for your special best friends <laughs> a, about to start a new life activity, I just
1: want, I want to hear some
3: theoretical thoughts from you on, from all of us maybe, on the intimacy of podcasting. And what is it mm-hmm. about, you know, why did you not try to, I don't know, get a sit down with Matthew Weiner or something like that? Yeah, <laughs> because
6: I would return my phone calls. It <laughs> but, yeah, I,
0: I would have been passed out in the first five <laughs> seconds. That's like, you guys are great, but that would be <laughs> next level. You're so much more approachable. <laughs> I mean, you know taking your word intimacy it's there is something and i was actually thinking about this before i even knew we were going to do this i mean i have this thought often because it is you know our bond over this and the savage love cast and other things that we both listen to and then chat about um double x on slate as well it is a really intimate act you know and i always wonder if you guys know that being on this side of the microphone you know because There are times when, you know, I'm just having the shittiest day. And after listening to you guys, my day is completely turned around. It, it, you know, that my commute would normally suck if you guys weren't there, which, again, sounds so like ugh, Mm -hmm. adore, But like, in a way, it is it is a really special thing. And, you know, I after I get married, um, I'm leaving New York shortly. And I imagine I'll listen to podcasts as I drive when I live in San Francisco. But it's. Something that one of the greatest things that I will miss about this city is just stomping around with a podcast in my ears. And it's um totally. Yeah, yeah. I know that we feel similarly about it. And so that's very sentimental, but it's true.
3: And hearing your voices as well. I mean, there is such a, a familiarity and a comfort to it. Um Whenever I do travel, whenever I'm on an airplane or I'm feeling a little anxious and I can't hear um, the voice of a, a friend or a loved one I put I have you know a really really small handful of podcasts that I listen to and I go okay these are familiar voices to me it can distract me from whatever it is I need to be distracted from and, and that's um yeah it means a lot I feel so um, like <laughs> touched I don't know what to say I mean I do but I'm also not surprised because I also listen I mean sure. I think you know I'm a very big podcast listener so I have that relationship with all sorts of other people including you know the Slate podcast I listen to I mean we always joke about it it's slate that so many of us work all day with a set of people and then go home and like put them back in our ears to listen to them again more Um, and so I, I know that feeling yeah, it, I have to sort of imagine by the transitive property that how I feel about, you know, for example, hearing John Dickerson's opinion on on the Slate political gap, I often will not decide what I think about some hot political topic until Friday when I can hear what he has to say exactly. about it. Oh. And so the idea that we perform that kind of function for anyone is just very touching. It's to like know.
0: a joke to us, too, because I'm famously very easily persuaded, like as long as the opinion comes from a person that I trust and that it's, like, well-structured or argued, that's, like, my opinion on it. <laughs> but yeah. it's, like, if one of you guys says a movie isn't that good, that's it. I'm not seeing it. Yeah. <laughs> Alright,
3: yeah, totally. I, will, I will proceed to feed more evil opinions into your brain and control you remotely.
0: And
1: after that moment, the Bachelorette party tried to ask the culture festers who their celebrity crush was. Dana was brave enough to venture forth Mark Ruffalo, Julia demured, Stephen said, or at least strongly implied that it was Robert Oppenheimer. And finally, now to hang up and listen, the occasion was Monet Davis, the phenomenal 13-year-old girl who dominated the Little League World Series. Josh Levine, Stefan Fatsis, and I brought on Washington Post columnist Sally Jenkins, who noted that if Monet Davis's accomplishments hadn't occurred against boys, she'd have been ignored. So Jenkins began by explaining her motivation for writing the column.
6: I guess I wrote it out of a, a certain sense of um, frustration with the... Um... You know the male tastemakers at uh, ESPN and Sports Illustrated. I mean, it's interesting that they put Monet Davis on the cover, but it was actually just, as it turns out, a regional cover. Depending on where you were, you got the Royals on the cover instead. I mean, I, I just think I was a little frustrated with some of the uh, self-congratulation at treating her like an athlete rather than a girl. But the fact is that the you know the vast vast majority of great female athletes in this country have to fight long and hard for funding and for audience, and uh, part of that is because quite honestly, I think a lot of the major publications and and airwaves uh, don't devote a whole lot of attention to uh, female sports.
7: I was surprised by the tone of your column. I just felt that I saw the Monet Davis story not so much as giving the, a girl a place on the pages because she was different, like making this this male-centered decision, as much as man bites dog. Look, there aren't that many girls that play Little League Baseball. And the quibble is, to me, is that more girls don't play Little League Baseball, that softball has become the de facto, and in some cases, de jour, ball sport for girls, that it's still well, shocking that girls play. Her achievement was real. And because of We Live in a Man, bites dog world. Yeah, the, the image of this girl on the mound in an otherwise all-but-one-girl event on these 16 teams was was unusual.
6: Well, sure. I mean, look, this, this is to take nothing away from Monet Davis and, you know, the extraordinary, you know, pitcher that she is. I was just trying to make a corrective point. You know, it's deceptive to say, oh, we've made uh, all kinds of progress uh, with female athletes when a 13-year-old girl... Can throw a seventy mile an hour fastball and be treated as a real athlete because of that, when in fact uh, the vast majority of female athletes aren't treated as real athletes. And that was my only point. I mean, it was great what she did. The coverage was great. Just for the record, there are about a thousand girls playing little league baseball, you know, in the competitions that would get you to a World Series. The more important point, as far as little league, wasn't so much that she was a girl to me as the kind of wildflower nature of her and also of her team. What she proved and what her team proved was that given some access and opportunity and funding, look what can happen. Look what kind of stunning little wildflower can grow up out of a little bit of opportunity.
1: And as far as Sports Illustrated, Amanda Hess uh, counted all the Sports Illustrated covers this year, uh, Slate's Amanda Hess. So there have been 73 if you include all the variations and there have only been 6. She's just the 6th out of 73 covers to be female and 3 of those 73 were uh, Winter Olympic previews, different athletes. And the funny thing is I just got done uh, clicking through all 73 and then next up, Gallery, NFL Cheerleaders Preseason Week 2, then Cheerleader of the Week, then Minor League Baseball Cheerleaders, which I I didn't even know was a thing. So I, I think maybe we could do better than six out of seventy-three women. Women should at least be a ten percent.
6: Thank you. I mean, that's all I was trying to point out. Really. I mean, look, I'm not a columnist to cry a victim for women. I mean, I, you know, I can count on two fingers the number of times I've actually wrote, a, you know, a column kind of complaining about female. Treatment in the sports arena. I mean, every job I ever got came from a guy, and every raise and promotion I ever got came from a, a male editor. So I'm not the resident storehead on this issue. I just felt like it was it was something a point that needed to be made in all of the kind of congratulatory um, discussions by guys over. Oh, look, you yeah. know, we're treating we're, we're treating Monet Davis as something other than a cheerleader. You know, I, if
1: I may, if I may ask you, have you been then turned down for promotion by female editors? <laughs>
6: No, I've done pretty well. I mean, I, I have no complaints about my treatment, but, uh, you know, it's funny. The only people who didn't seem to like the column were guys like John Feinstein, a very dear friend of mine, who, to this day, will, refuses to watch a women's basketball game. He simply will not do it. You know, he's going to take great exception with some of the things I've, I've said today. It really bugged him, for instance, that in the column I said that Diana Taurasi and Candace Parker are two of the best basketball players on the planet. I mean, that that drove him crazy. He said, no, they're two of the best women basketball players on the planet. Well, that leads to the Uh,
7: question, to something you raised in the column, which was this notion of evaluating women's performances on a continuum and men's performances on a continuum, just a human continuum. Uh, The example you cited was a a marathon runner in in a Minnesota marathon. A better example, I think, is one that happened just yesterday. Katie Ledecky broke the record for the 1500 in swimming. It's a race that that the IOC has not permitted to be added to the calendar in the Olympics. Because women might die. That's right. It's, it's just too, too, far. They it's might too get, far. They might get cancer, right, if they, if they swim the 1500. Yeah. Um, if Katie Ledecky had swum that race at the U.S. Nationals a few weeks ago, she would have finished 18th among men. So right. is there a benefit in evaluating women on a human continuum Or would that further embolden people to say, ah, well, they're just not as good, so why bother? Who cares? Why should I watch Diana Taurasi when she couldn't stay on the court with, uh, with LeBron James?
6: Well, I mean, Diana Trozzi can't stay on the court with LeBron James from a size and strength standpoint, but I would pick her in a game of horse against LeBron James potentially. I mean, I think she's every bit as skilled as he is no um, with the jumper. She can't dunk the ball, but Candace Parker can. And in fact, Candace Parker won the McDonald's dunk contest as a high school senior. So, you know, look, head to head competition with guys is very intriguing. I, I enjoy it as much as anybody. I do think that some segregated sports are necessary. Just because of the, you know, the size and weight differences. I mean, guys on average are male, have more muscle mass and, and more more lean muscle and longer bones and stronger bones and we all we all know that. But this lame idea of sameness, you know, I don't see why we have to have absolutely exact sameness and say that one is inherently superior. Diana Tarazzi and Candace Parker are as dedicated to their craft as any ball player on the face of the earth. To call them inherently inferior just doesn't seem right to me. But on the other hand, anytime I say that they're two of the best basketball players on the planet, there's a couple guys I know who feel like they have to put on their protective cups. It's an interesting discussion. I don't know why it should be so threatening to some guys.
7: You know, it you know, still hurts to get kicked really in. it's
6: threatening to some women, too, to tell you the truth. You know, it
7: still hurts to get
2: kicked in, in the balls, even if you're wearing a cup, so <laughs> feel free.
6: My understanding is it can hurt worse.
2: Uh, well, that's a conversation for another day. I mean, I right. think... The, maybe we can, Slate plus plus. Yeah. I think maybe we can end by... I mean, the thing that was cool to me, is that you noted in your column, like, the battle of the sexes between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs was a a important event, was a cool event, but it was fundamentally contrived event, and it kind of sets up this pernicious, you know, men versus women, who's better? But this was not contrived. It was a really organic thing that happened, and in the whole, like, men versus women, who's better? That has rarely, if ever... Happened, And I think that that's why this story felt so real and organic. And maybe it yeah. is sad that this could only happen because these are kids and that it's not going to happen when they're older. But that's, to me, what felt cool and genuine about it.
6: Well, you know what's really cool to think about is, you know, we don't know that it can't ever happen. The, the interesting thing is that female athletics, as as Mary Jo Kane, who I quoted in the in the column, she points out that women's sports are a startup. You know, it's like comparing a startup company to IBM. You know, women have only been competing on this level since about 1976. And we've seen these incredibly steep performance curves, like you mentioned in Katie Ledecky. So the intriguing thing is to look at whether or not, given you know, a few more decades of hardcore training and uh, learning about their physiology, whether women can, can do some catching up in that muscle gap or performance gap.
2: Well, maybe John Feinstein, just uh, maybe he won't be alive then, and that'll, that'll be okay. <laughs> I hope he is. I hope, I he, hope is. he is,
6: too. It's fun to argue with him.
2: All right. Thank you, Sally. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Sally. Sally Jenkins is a columnist for The Washington Post.
1: That's it for today's show. Those segments all had producers, people like Mike Volo, Ann Hepperman, and Mike Volo. This show has a producer. It's Andrea Salenzi. Joel Meyer is the managing editor of Slate Podcast, but he wasn't here when those were podcasts. In fact, those were the segments that drew him in. Andy Bowers is executive producer of Slate Podcasts, including the failed experiment for Slate Plus members, where Andy would personally re-record every Slate Podcast, but in a soothing whisper for bedtime listening. It was called 99% unhearable and it did not go well. It did not go well. I'll tell you about Slate Plus now a little bit. It's an all-access pass for readers. Membership has many benefits and if you're a podcast listener, I'm guessing you might be, Slate Plus members can get an ad-free version and bonus segments like the ones you just heard. You can sign up at slate.com/plus i'll throw you a free trial for two weeks that's slate.com slash plus also i'll mention again that all those podcasters you heard will be doing a Gabfest Superfest november 17th in williamsburg brooklyn tomorrow's an antan twig it is the first half of the second half of an unconventionally accounted for rest of my life and i got that phrase tattooed on the small of my back it is not a tramp stamp people thanks for listening